Hey, podcasters, it is Wednesday, September 11th, 2019, 18 years ago. Uh, we were on the air telling America about the World Trade Center coming down, and we really, we really focused on that. And we had a, a couple of really amazing guests to talk about it. Uh, one is Garrett Graff. He's the author of this new book called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's the best history book I have, I've read in a long time. There's no opinion in it. It's just the oral history in a minute-by-minute minute what happened that day, and it's riveting. We go through some of those stories. Also, Brad Meltzer joins us. All of this today on the podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Something weird is going on. Yeah. We the World Trade Center is on fire. Oh, my god. Seriously, goodness. the top it, of the building. We're trying to get information. Top level of one of the... News to unfold from New York City. A plane crash crashed. <gasps> Just... My sister's in that building. Okay. And I hope she's okay. And I got to run to New York. Oh, my God. Pandemonium. Okay, first of all, calm down. There's raining papers and Everything. ashes and...
It is Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. This is Glenn Beck. Dateline, New York. In one of the most audacious attacks ever, terrorists hijacked two airliners, crashed them into the World Trade Center in a coordinated series of blows today that brought down the twin 110-story towers. Thousands may be dead, 58,000 people work at the World Trade Center. One plane, United Flight 93, crashed north of Somerset County Airport, a small airport 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. United said that flight, Boeing 757, left Newark at 801, and it We started going back and, and listening to what we did on September 11th, 18 years ago. And I remember doing one thing. I haven't heard it since. Could you please play the last cut? GB's prayer. I, I have not heard this since I did it. And I remember the moment go ahead i think it is appropriate as we end our business day today that we together ask for her blessing on this great nation so i ask you to pull over your car Stop what you're doing. Hush your surroundings. 
And take a moment with me. As we speak to our Father who gave us life. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you today to watch over us. Your children are confused and frightened. We are saddened by the loss of our brothers and saddened by the violence that our other brothers have brought upon us. We ask for your warm embrace. We ask for your, we beg for your guidance now. We ask for the guidance of our leaders that they may put aside all hatred and have a clear view as to the truth and what must be done. I remember giving this prayer, and I remember looking up at Stu early on, and he was, we had never done anything. It was a different world. We had never done anything like that before. And I looked up, and he looked at me like, you're going to pray. <laughs> do you remember that, Stu? <laughs> Sounds like something I would do. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to play that. Because when, when was the last time we actually reached out like that to him? When was the last time we had that, that much of a heartfelt collective, we're in trouble, please help us? Perhaps that's why we are struggling as much as we are. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn. And if you like what you hear on the program, you should check out Pat Gray Unleashed. His podcast is available wherever you download your favorite podcast. A picture seared in the nation's memory. President Bush at ground zero three days after the attacks. A bullhorn in one hand, the other draped around firefighter Bob that Beckwith. firefighter Beckwith. with President Bush was Bob Beckwith. Beckwith stood shoulder to shoulder with President Bob Bush. Bob Beckwith, a firefighter from Queens, New York, in his mid-60s. That day, he stood alongside the president and stepped onto the national patriotic stage. Bob, are you there? Yes. Hi, Bob. How are you? Very good. And yourself? I'm very good, sir. Very good. I uh, I just wanted to touch base with you. Um, the, your experiences with 9-11, because I I painted a painting of, of you a couple of weeks ago for an auction. And as I was painting you, I thought, you know, I know this man's story, but not really. And now that you've had you know, almost 20 years to digest it. I'd love to hear, first of all, where were you on 9-11 when it happened? When it happened, my daughter had called me that my grandson going to school on his bicycle was hit by a car about two blocks away from me. And I ran over there to see what was happening, and and I saw him on the ground, but he was moving, so I uh, that was a plus. And I found out from the uh, ambulance driver where, what hospital they were taking him to. And I came home to get my car. I, I listened on the radio, and it said a, I heard a guy say that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything. And, and so I came inside, and, and my wife had it on the television already, and they had cameras there. I was looking, and I said, that's a little bit bigger than a small plane. Yeah. 
I figured I got a bad day going. My grandson gets hit by a car, and now a plane goes in. Where were you living at the time, Bob? I was living right here in Baldwin, New York. When did the phone call come in that you had to go? Were you with your grandson in the hospital, or what? when did you... Yes, I went to the hospital to uh, be with him. Everybody was watching television at the hospital, and, uh, and I, I saw... The, the South Tower come down. Oh my God. One World Trade Center has collapsed in its entirety. One World Trade Center is gone. And then a, a few months later, the, uh, the the North Tower came down. The other tower just collapsed. Ready to collapse. And I knew that there was guys in the building, you know, because the firemen were in there. You know what goes through your head when the, it just hits you pretty hard. Bob, did you, did you have any inkling that those towers might come down when you saw never thought it would add i really honestly never thought that they were coming down boy was i shocked when they when that happened so when would you when did you first arrive at ground zero what happened was i i came home that uh from the hospital later that day and uh, I told my wife and my kids that I'm going down to ground zero. And they said, don't go down. You're too old. I was 69 years old. And uh, they thought I was an old man there and uh, I'm going to get in the way. So uh, just don't go down there. The next day, I find out that um, Jimmy Boyle. Now, Jimmy Boyle was the, uh, the president of the UFA, the Uniform Firefighters Association. Mm-hmm. And I was one of his delegates. And when I found out his son is missing, I said, that's it, I'm out of here. And I I suited up the next morning, and I got to go down to Ground Zero. So I'm driving down there. I'm on a BQE, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and I'm going towards the Williamsburg Bridge. Oh, guess what? The bridges are closed. And I saw a, a cop's car going over the bridge with two vans behind it. I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And I drove between the cones, and I went on a bridge. But when I got over to the other side, there was nobody, no, nobody was there. Everything was gray. And I went over to the house watch at 55 engine, and I told them I'm going down to ground zero. And I said, well, good luck. I said, what the heck is that good luck about? Anyway, the police department, they're, they're, they're lined up on a perimeter all around the ground zero. I said, I gotta get in there, you know, and I showed them my badge, and uh, they let me in. And then the guy said to me, good luck. So I went down to about a block or two, and then I see the National Guard. Mm-hmm. They were on the perimeter also. Mm-hmm. And I said, we don't care that you're a fireman, but uh, you're not getting in. So I had to think fast, and I talked my way in. <laughs> I w- you know, I was at that perimeter. I don't know how anyone could have talked themselves through that line. How did you do it? Uh, I, I told a little fib dev, I told him I, I, I missed the rig and I was going to get in trouble if I didn't get in there. And, and they bought it. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you're, so you're there. You snuck across the bridge on the yeah. island. Then you, you, uh, you sneak across the uh, barrier with the National Guard. Right. And then what happens? And then I came into Ground Zero, and I tell you, it was a shock. Yeah, you can see the people running for, as the buildings begin to crumble. Running, racing for their lives. One of the buildings has partially collapsed. The first thing that came to my mind was, this is how it probably looked in the, in the Blitz. When yeah, wow. You know what happened? I, I worked down there all that day. And I was on the bucket brigade, and I found a shovel, and I started digging with the guys, and we were, and we found a, a, a pumper. A pumper is a fire engine in the rubble, and we told the crane operator to put the the rig out on the in the street, and which he did. Some guy comes over and he says, "The president is here," and I saw the guys put their shovel down, and I put mine down, and I walked out to the street. And there's that pumper we just dug out of the rubble. I jumped up on it, and right across the street was a command post, a tent with all microphones in front of it. I figured, oh, that's where the president's going to talk. This Secret Service man came over to me, and he said, is this safe? I said, yeah. 
And he said, well, jump up and down on it for me. So I jumped up and down on it for him. And he said, okay. He said, somebody important is coming over here. And when they come over here, you help them up, and then you get down. I said, okay, because you do what the Secret Service guy tells you to do. Mm. The president comes around, and he does a hard right, and he comes right in front of me, and he puts his arm up. So I pull him up, and I turn him around, and I said to him, are you okay, Mr. President? He said, yeah. And then I start to get down. He said, where are you going? I said, I, I was told to get down. He said, no, no, you stay right here. And he put his arm around me, and uh, that's my story. That's unbelievable. It I didn't, is. I didn't it know. Is. I didn't know any of those things. What did the president say to you at one point? Do you even remember when he turned to you in the middle of the speech and he said some things to you? Do you remember? No, we couldn't hear. We couldn't yeah. hear each other. We did speak to each other, but we didn't hear each other. It was too loud. The guys were—they were yelling. I didn't remember him having that that megaphone, that the bullhorn. Really. And then he started to speak, and he's speaking to the right, and and the guys on the left, they're yelling, "We can't hear you." And he then he turned to the left with the with the bullhorn, and he said, "I can hear you." And the, the whole world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. They went crazy. When they went nuts. They started chanting USA, USA, USA. And it, it, it was, uh, he said everything in those three sentences. So, Bob, um, you, you were given a, uh, a flag right after his visit, right? Yes. When I was helping him get down from the rig, somebody handed him the flag. And he puts his arm up and he waves the flag. I saw Governor Pataki standing there, so I tapped him on the shoulder. And he turns around and he grabs my legs and he picks me up and he puts me out in the street. I said, you're gonna hurt yourself. He said, I'm a big guy. I said, okay. I'm walking back to go to, back to work. And this Secret Service guy taps me on the shoulder and he said, the, the president's been looking for you. I said, oh, now what did I do? <laughs> and, and he said, he wants you to have this flag. I said, oh, very nice, thank you. And I stuck it in my pocket, and I'm going back to work. Anyway, Glenn, the Secret Service guy that told me when the politician comes over there and takes my spot to get down, when I went on television, I, I would tell them my story. And I got a letter from the White House. I'm the guy that, that told you to, to, what to do. Thank you for calling me a Secret Service guy, but, uh, and he signs it. Carl Rove, senior advisor to the president. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my yes, God. exactly. That's so, what I said. So let me ask you this, because the day before, your family was saying, you're just going to get in the way. When you got home, after sneaking across the bridge, sneaking past uh, <laughs> the National Guard, working, then the president is giving the one of the most memorable speeches probably since the day of infamy. Uh, what did your family say? I drove over and I said, who's going to believe that I was with the president? <laughs> there were no cameras down there, Glenn. No cameras at all that I saw. Anyway, I pull up in front of my house and people are coming out, my neighbors, and they all carry in the candles. That was the day they were, had candles. Mm. And they came into my driveway and this... And this police officer across the street from me, and a city cop, and he said to me, Beck, you're, right. you're, uh, you're on television. I said, get out of here. There's no, there were no cameras down there. So I came in the house, and my granddaughter was sitting on a couch, and she says, Grandpa, you're on, watch, you're on television. And they were showing it over and over. I said, wow. I was surprised that, that they had me and the president, who was the most important thing. Mm. Yeah. You you stayed in touch with the president? I, we did. We still keep in touch. Uh, myself and my wife and, and my a couple of my kids, we were invited to the Oval Office. And it was very nice. Everybody was there. You know, Governor Pataki, Carl Rove was there, Mayor Giuliani, Tommy Van Essen, the commissioner, and Chuck mm -hmm. Schumer. You've had some special experiences because of that picture. Yes, we were called into, excuse me, uh, Germany three times 
and then twice in Cologne, and that really treated top shelf. So, Bob, when you look back at this now, what is it that you take away? What is it that we should, as a people, take away from that moment uh, on the fire truck? You know what, Glenn? We fought two wars. We fought the Japanese and we fought the Germans, and we stuck together. And that's the same thing that happened at, at, at 9/11. People came in from every state to help us. Search and rescue, know, and and rescue right, and the yeah. and the food. I was, I was there, Bob, and uh, I saw people come from all over the country to feed you guys. And my my wife and I went. Yeah, these firemen were coming out after a long day, and both of us just started to applaud like I don't know we, it was just it was everything was upside down and uh, the enormity of it was just remarkable yes it really was but we stuck together and uh, we we received uh, rigs that we lost in it and the, uh, other states helped they built the rigs and sent them to us you know, this is America, and people are great. They really are. Bob, it's a it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, it really is. I I, I made a um, I made a painting for for charity, and I was I was wondering if you would be willing to sign it. If I sent it up to you, would you be willing to sign it? Of course. That would be great. That would be great. Bob, thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you, Glenn. Thank you. Bye bye. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Brad Meltzer is a good friend of mine. Uh, We became friends after 9-11, a few years after that. Um, And we have connected on history. And Brad is with us. He has a new book out today. Uh, it's about Walt Disney, and, and I want to talk to him about it. It's a great children's book, I Am Walt Disney. But I also wanted to talk to him about 9-11. Where were you, Brad, when the towers came down? I was in Washington, D.C., of all places. And this is, you know, we lost our friend Michelle Heidenberger, was a flight attendant on the Pentagon flight. And my wife, uh, this is why it hits me today, not because of the finding of the flag, which obviously was an honor, but it was the personal side. As we all know, we all have our one story that makes up this quilt of history. And my wife worked in the U.S. Capitol, and she was driving to work. She was eight months pregnant, giant belly, my son about to be born in October. And my wife thought, you know, the towers were hit. I wonder what security, I wonder if they'll increase security at the Capitol. And... She said, wait a minute, our security is terrible. And she pulls over to the side of the road and calls me and says, I, don't, I have a bad feeling. I'm just going to stay home. And I know to this day that but for the heroes on United Flight 93 in Pennsylvania, that if that flight did not go down in Pennsylvania, it was headed to the Capitol. I know people say the White House, but if you look, the plaque that honors them is actually in the U.S. Capitol. And but for them, my life could have been profoundly different. And I think of them, of course, every 9-11 um, but they deserve to be remembered every single day for what they did. Hmm. That was that was one of the most moving things of 9-11 was um, not only the way everyone kind of pulled together, but what those people on that flight did. And it wasn't, you know, it was, it was weird. I haven't even heard this. Can we play, play my response? Somebody called into the show. I haven't heard this yet. This is seven hours after the planes hit the World Trade Center. There's plenty of time to scream for blood. There is plenty of time to exact the price of the day's events. But I don't know about anybody else. I, I, I'm not there yet. I'm barely hanging on emotionally just on the overwhelming events of the day. I haven't been able to process, take out the human, take out the human toll. I haven't even been able to process that the skyline of New York is different. 
let alone that there is a possibility with 58,000 people working in the World Trade Center the possibility within an hour of business this morning we lost more American lives than were lost in the entire Vietnam War I'm not ready to scream for blood yet. Devastating. I think it's time right. to be around like-minded people, people that you don't know. And hold on to them for dear life. It was such an, uh, I mean, remember that day we didn't, we really thought 30 to 50,000 people could be dead by God's oh, grace. I remember being in D.C. and we didn't, you know, it was, we were putting together the funeral for my friend Michelle, who was the flight attendant on the Pentagon flight, and driving down to make photocopies for the memorial program and the big poster of her, I should say. And, and there was armed guards like, it was under martial law that we thought there was another plane coming at any moment. We didn't know what, you know, we lose that. And, and I, I really was struck Len, by what you just said in that clip, which is, you know, holding on to people you don't know. And, and I'm just so saddened as I, as we all relive this moment of nine 11 and those visceral memories kind of come back that in that chaos, there was that unity again, right? We felt mm -hmm. somehow that these United States of America were that magical word again, united. And it's so horrifying to me that it takes a tragedy to do it. But it is amazing what kindness comes out in those low moments. They, you know, the lowest moments always bring out the best of us. And when we were searching for the 9-11 flag, you know, everyone knows the great photograph of the firefighters raising the flag at 9-11. And the flag went missing 24 hours later. Uh, I became obsessed with it and, uh, and started searching for it. We did a story on it on our TV show and said to America, please bring it back. Now, here's a story I don't know if anyone knows. Is on the episode of our TV show on History Channel where we asked to come back, I said, I added something to the script that we had. And I said, I want you to bring it back for my friend Michelle Heidenberger, this flight attendant on the Pentagon flight. Because 3,000 people dead, is, it was always too hard to imagine but for me, it was always for my friends. And when the flag finally was returned, right after the episode aired, I couldn't tell anyone, but four days later, a man walked into a fire station in Washington State, in Everett, Washington, and said he was a former Marine. He said, here's the flag. I saw lost history, and I want to bring it back. And I finally, secretly, um, when it came back, I, I called him to say thank you on behalf of the American people. And I said to him, he said to me, you want to know why I brought it back, Brad? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did, because we offered a reward. To this day, he's never taken the reward. We offered him $10,000 to whoever brought it back. He's never taken it. But he said, you want to know why I brought the, the flag from 9-11 back? And I said, sure. And he said, because of your friend, Michelle Heidenberger. He's like, mm -hmm. you mentioned her on the air, and it got to me. And I knew I had to bring it back in that moment. How did he get I it? I love that. How did he get he the flag? He was he was like yourself and myself. He was a collector. He was, but his specialty was American flags, and he got it from someone who lost someone at Ground Zero, and he doesn't mm. even know someone gave that flag to that person who lost their loved one. And you know, again, at that moment in time, it wasn't a famous flag. It was right, just right. a flag that had been lifted. It wasn't. It didn't become famous until it ran on the cover of Newsweek and everywhere else. So. Right. It wasn't like anyone was like secretly going, oh, I'm going to steal this flag and give it away. It wasn't famous then. No one knew what it was. It was just a flag. So he got it from someone who just cleared it out of their attic and said, you know, I don't want this anymore. They, he saw the show and returned it. And, uh, and it, it, again, to be a small part of that, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 a few years ago, I got to unveil that flag in the 9-11 Museum. It is currently on display. And I highly encourage anyone, as you think of it today, when you're in New York next time, go to the museum. It is a museum that is proof that heroes still exist in the world. And we knew that that wasn't the right flag, the, not this one, but the like, I think with Giuliani, didn't he go out to Yankee Stadium and he claimed that that's that exactly. was the flag and somehow yeah. or another somebody figured out that's not it? How, how did How did that happen? 
Yeah, so Giuliani and everyone signed the flag at Yankee Stadium. They had this big kind of homecoming, and they brought the flag out, and everyone cheered. And they all signed it. And the owners of the flag, it was actually taken from a boat um, down at Ground Zero, was this Greek couple. And the Greek couple said, hey, that's our flag. And everyone knew it was off their boat. They knew where it came from. They said, can we use the flag at a charity benefit? They're doing a 9-11 benefit. We'd love mm-hmm. to bring the flag there. And the, and the city said, of course. So they gave the flag to the couple. And the couple unfurls the flag at the event. And they realize this flag is gigantic. Their flag was small. They're like, someone switched the flag. They lost it. And then to cover it up, someone just added a new flag. So that was how they finally realized it was missing. And that's how, uh, of course, we got on the case and just said, you know, someone out there must have the real one. uh, And please bring it back to us. I'm going to ask you a tough question um, that is kind of uh, unfair in some ways to ask you on the spot. But I am I'm looking at uh, last hour. I played something that I haven't heard in 18 years. I was on the air and it was the end of the broadcast. And I think we had been on the air for about eight hours. And I said, I want you to pull your car over. Because I think it's appropriate that we pray. And in that it was a real. uh, Anguished kind of help us, Lord, kind of prayer. And. I think we have gone so far astray because uh, as I was listening to that, I thought, I I don't know the last time we as a nation collectively said, help us, we're in trouble. And no, listen, I, I, I think that's, I, I, we, I, I say a prayer, of course I say my prayers every day, every night, right? Um, but on this 9-11, and my prayers will of course be with those we lost, but the prayer that I'm saying today um, is I just read this article that all the first responders, right, who were lost 18 years ago, how many of their kids who were just born are now signing up to be firemen and, fire, and, and firefighters and police officers that are in this incoming class? And they know exactly what is at risk. They know exactly the cost of this job. 18 years ago, they lost their dads, their moms. And my gosh, how do we not include them in our prayers, too, as a thankful like that these people are out there? Uh, Hang on. I want to ask you a different question. So, Brad, we are now paying for the consequences of our actions, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, the Patriot Act, all of these different things. Um, uh, What is the what is the lesson? And and you might even want to come back tomorrow and answer this. What is the thing that we have done in the last 18 years that we should now look back and go, that was a mistake. We probably shouldn't have done that. And we should talk about it and correct this mistake. Listen, um, I think when we look back on history and, and obviously be happy to come and talk tomorrow, because I know, you know, th- there's just two big issues to talk yeah. about today and we have to. But, I, you know, I think the thing that haunts me is um, that misinformation that took us to war as if we were, you know, we were so rightfully, you know, looking for someone to get, right? Yeah. We were attacked personally. Yeah. And I do think that, um, you know, and I, and, and I was at President Bush's funeral. Uh, I saw W was at dinner right. with him months ago. Right. Um, but that is haunting, that we had the wrong information and went to war in on Iraq. the wrong information yeah. that, in Iraq. That, that is, is forever haunting because... You know, I've done books on Dover Air Force Base and the men and women who take care yep, of our yep. fallen soldiers. Yep. And how many fallen troops have gone through Dover for truly what I can only say is the wrong reason. And not just because it's wrong that anyone should die, right? We don't want any one of our troops to pay the ultimate price. But, you know, sent to battle for what? You know, and that's what, you know, you have to, at the end of the day, we see war and that's a big word, but we forget that, you know, when you enlist in the military, they will tell you um, as the spouse of, a, of someone who is uh, sending their spouse into battle, that if two people show up at your front door, it means your loved one's dead. And if one shows up at your door, they're just injured. And those are real things that happen. Those are real funerals that happened. Um, thousands of, of, you know, men and women buried because of this. They told me, you know, at Dover that at the height of Iraq and Afghanistan, there were so many bodies coming through there 
that they literally had to, you know, find another cooler to stack them up on. They were coming so big, so many so fast. And that's that's the thing that I look back on and say that's, we, you know, one of the places where we went so, so wrong. Brad, let me switch to your book. Um, I am Walt Disney. You uh, you know how much of a fan I am of Walt Disney. I did not know about the tar painting on the back of his house. How good. So, listen, uh, again, oh, and, you know, let's, we're talking about heroes. So let's actually talk about the positive side of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, the reason why we're so moved today, I still believe, is our culture is, you know, I started this book series and in many ways, you know, almost in a similar vein. I was tired of my kids looking at people who were famous for being famous, famous for the wrong reasons. I wanted to give my kids heroes like these 9-11 heroes, but heroes of character, heroes of kindness and compassion and hard work and perseverance. And, and we did I Am Amelia Earhart and I Am Abraham Lincoln and I Am George Washington. But our number one requested hero is the, the one that comes out today, I Am Walt Disney. Number and one request? Number one request is I am Walt Disney. We had to do the book. And kids, when they come to my book signs, they don't make requests. They make demands. They're like, oh, you know. <laughs> and, uh, when you're, when you're really old or really young, you can get away with that. Hang on just a That's sec, right. Brad. That's i gotta, right. I got to take a quick break. Back with Brad Meltzer, um, who is gracious enough to be with us uh, today and talk about 9-11, but also heroes. And I want to talk about heroes when we come back. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to tell you about something that you should either end your day with or um, start your morning with, and that is the news and why it matters. If you like this show, you're going to love the news and why it matters. It's a bunch of us that all get together at the end of the day and just talk about the stories that matter to you and your life. The news and why it matters. Look for it now wherever you download your favorite podcast. The name of the book is The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. Garrett Graff is the author. Garrett, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on this day. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to have you. I... I have to tell you, this your book. You are going to sell, I hope, millions of copies. Uh, this is a hard uh, topic to get people to look at, uh, and I don't really want to live through another rehash of nine eleven. And I don't want somebody's opinion on nine eleven. I just want to know what happened. Uh, this. How long did it take you to put this book together? Uh, it was three years start to finish trying to pull together ultimately what are the 480 voices uh, that I follow uh, across America, coast to coast, morning to night that day. I mean, it is it is incredible the number of people that you have in and your voice is not one of them, which I so appreciate. It is it is just you. Did you interview everyone about that day and then cut them up minute by minute to place them? Yeah. So the book is a mix of my original interviews, uh, several hundred stories that I collected myself, uh, and then some incredible work by institutions like the 9-11 Museum in New York, the Flight 93 National Memorial, mm. the Pentagon Historian, um, people who recognized after 9-11 the importance of capturing these stories. And, and we started uh, the book uh, with about 2,000 of those archived primary source oral histories uh, that I ultimately spent you know, uh, months and years boiling down to this story minute by minute. And, and I think that to me, the reason that I wanted to tell this story, and I think that the reason you're, you're feeling that it's so powerful is that when we say never forget, what we generally mean on 9-11 now are the facts of the day, mm -hmm. you know, the four planes, the Twin mm -hmm. Towers, the Pentagon, Shanksville. And what we are losing as we celebrate, you know, this 18th anniversary now this year is what that day was like to experience, what yes. it was like to live through. Because the story that we now tell ourselves of 9-11 is so much neater and cleaner than this, the day that we lived as Americans that day. That, you know, we now know 
the attacks were 102 minutes long, from the first crash at 8.46 to the collapse of the second tower at 10.29. Uh, we didn't know that on 9-11. And when you go back and you tell that story through the voices of the people who were living it, what you come away with is the fear and the confusion that we felt that day. Um, you know, well into the afternoon, worrying about follow-on attacks, worried about more hijacked planes in the skies. I mean, Disney closed that day. Uh, yeah. You know, Disney feared an attack on, on itself that day. The Sears Tower in Chicago was evacuated. You know, schools closed coast to coast. And, and everyone that day, you know, no matter how far you were from the Twin Towers, from the Pentagon, from Shanksville, you felt that visceral fear that we now, I think, have lost as we sort of forget just what that day was like to live and let me if i may just i just want to read a couple of things uh from this and i'm going to just kind of jump around a bit but but this is how this book is written roger uh robert uh letter executive of smw trading company north tower i was on the 85th floor i was looking out the window facing the empire state building when i saw the plane come into the building there was such a dramatic change of atmospheric pressure the building swayed from the impact, and it nearly knocked me off my chair. Our ceiling imploded. Some of the walls began to explode. Um, Harry Waits or tax counsel, Canner Fitzgerald, North Tower. I was in the elevator at 846 in the North Tower when the first jet hit the Trade Center. My office was on the 104th floor. I had gone up to the Sky Lobby on 78, and I had made the transition over the local area, uh, uh, local elevators. I was somewhere between 78 and 104. Gene Potter, Bank of America, North Tower, 81st floor. I was thrown out of my chair, like thrown. It was a horrible, loud explosion. The building started to rock back and forth. Smoke filled the air immediately. We were fortunately right by the staircase because our floor was fully involved, uh, involved with fire. Maybe I heard four or five survivors from above us. Uh, Vanessa Lawrence, artist, North Tower 91st. I had literally put one foot out of the elevator onto the 91st and was thrown to the side. Smoke and debris blasted down our corridor and the building shook. Uh, Richard Eichen. I saw my left shoulder, an Asian man coming towards me. He was on the 90th, 90th floor. He looked like he had been deep fried. He had his arms out. His skin was hanging like seaweed. He was begging me to help him. He said, help me, help me. And then he did a face plant right between my legs. He died there. I looked down and that's when I saw my shirt was full of blood. I didn't know that I was hurt. You go into the, the accounts of the people in the elevator that had burst into flames I didn't know any of these people survived. Yeah, and the, those stories are so harrowing to, to hear, uh, in part because, and this was one of the things that just really uh, came across to me uh, in doing this research and telling these stories, is what the sensory experience of 9-11 was like, that you know, we we remember you know the facts of the day, but yeah. none of us none of us actually really know what nine eleven tasted like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like, what it felt like, and so uh, you know I, I was amazed as I was going through and and writing this and compiling this is you know what this you know the people talking about the smell of the plane crash of flight 93 in shanksville as those volunteer firefighters arrived on the scene you know the people like harry weiser and richard eichen talking about what that heat felt like um you know they get down then through those stairwells the stairwells have uh, the fire sprinklers going. And so they're coming out the bottom of the Twin Towers, soaking wet, that water pooling at the base of the stairwells. And, you know, the idea that these people in their final moments before they walk out to freedom, it, they are wading through knee-deep water in the stairwells of the Twin Towers as it's pooling at the bottom. I, I mean, the, what the dust of the collapse tasted like in your mouth, what it was like to step in it, um, you know, it, it just the sounds of that day. I mean, it was just so amazing to sort of understand that sensory experience. The 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 chapter at Emma Booker Elementary School is also fascinating to me. Um, the way that um, Rudy Giuliani, when he first heard 
you know, he was at a hotel and he was like, hang on, I go, I gotta go to the bathroom because I'll probably be, you know, be out for a long time. Uh, but he had no idea the gravity of it. He thought it was a small Cessna. Um, the, the, let me just read this part a thousand times a day. This is Andy Carr, the guy who told, uh, the president at the elementary school, uh, Dave Wilkinson said, we're beginning to get the motorcade up and running, getting the motor co- motorcycle cops back. We're ready to evacuate at a moment's notice. And all of a sudden it hits me. The president is the only one who doesn't know that this plane has hit the second building. It was a discomfort to all of us that the president didn't know the event was dragging on. And that's when Andy card came out. Andy, a thousand times a day, a chief of staff has to ask, does the president need to know this was an easy pass to test? My job that day was to be cool, calm and collected, not the same magnitude, of course, but I knew my job on 9-11 was cool, calm and collected. Carl Rove, I remember Andy Card pausing at the door before he went into the classroom. It seemed like forever, but it was probably just a couple of heartbeats. I never understood why, but he told me years later that he needed to spend a moment formulating the words he wanted to use. Andy, I knew I was delivering a message that no president would want to hear. I decided to pass on two facts as an editorial com and an editorial comment. I didn't want to invite a conversation because the president was sitting in front of the classroom. The teacher had asked the students to take out their books, and I took that opportunity to approach the president. I whispered in his ear, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. Uh, I took a couple of steps back so he couldn't ask any questions. Um, then you quote a couple of the students that remember his face and how it changed. Andy, I was pleased how the president reacted. He didn't do anything to create fear. Uh, then he walked out. Carl Rove said when the president walked back to, into the staff hold, he said, we're at war. Give me the FBI director and the vice president. I mean, it's uh, you've just by using the dialogue. It's almost a movie script. The whole the whole thing. And it's it's riveting. Absolutely riveting. Um, let me take a one minute break and then we'll come back with uh, Garrett Graff. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. If you want to have a real history book on what actually happened, uh, The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Please uh, get one for your, your library at home. The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand.